So this can either be caused by overexercising, so spending a lot of energy, or by underfueling, either consciously or subconsciously. So when I say consciously or subconsciously, people with disordered eating or eating disorders may underfuel by consciously restricting their intake. The un- subconsciously part is if someone just doesn't realize how much food it takes to fuel their energy outputs and exercise. The Triathlon Show 233. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Margot Mountjoy. Dr. Mountjoy is a sports medicine clinician and the associate clinical professor at McMaster University in Canada, and she is the lead author of the 2018 IOC consensus statement on Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, or REDS for short, which uh, previously has been known as the Female Athlete Triad. And in this episode, we will discuss REDS, its symptoms and uh, root cause, screening, diagnosis, treatment, recovery, and much, much more. So it's a very interesting one, and uh, it is surprisingly prevalent, so definitely something that is worth uh, tuning into and uh, being on the lookout for, whether it's in yourself or in uh, other athletes around you. Uh, So let's get into that right after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration make electrolyte products that you can choose to match your individual sweat sodium concentration because everybody has a different concentration of sodium in their sweat. And if you are somebody like me who loses a lot of sodium in their sweat, then you have different sodium replacement needs than somebody who loses less of that. You can find out a good estimate for how much you lose by taking a free online sweat test under the free hydration plan tab on Precision Hydration's website and you can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka's wetsuits are unique in that they were the first in the world to introduce arms up technology in their wetsuits uh, which uh, basically means that you have greater mobility in the shoulder area of the wetsuit than with most other wetsuits and the fantastic thing is that this arms up technology is present in all of Roka's wetsuits not just the high-end ones but everything from entry level up and also it is present in their tri-suits so actually when you have a Roka tri-suit and a wetsuit neither of them is going to restrict your shoulder mobility uh, which could happen if you have a more tight tri-suit even if you have a Roka wetsuit that tri-suit might be what's uh, putting some shoulder mobility limitations on you so check that out also check out their newest wetsuit the maverick mx which is their maximum buoyancy wetsuit which makes use of that arm technology to add even more flotation or buoyancy to the wetsuit in terms of materials which uh, makes it the most buoyant wetsuit they have ever developed 
Go to roca.com forward slash TTS to get a discount code that will get you 20% off your entire order of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Margot Mountjoy. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Margot. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for the uh, invitation to connect with uh, your your listeners. It's uh, a pleasure to to have you. And uh, the topic that we will discuss today is uh, relative energy deficiency in sport. We'll get into that uh, in just a little bit. But first, can you just give a bit brief background of uh, who you are and uh, how you got into uh, in, into this field of research and practice? Uh, thank you. I'm a sport medicine physician, so I'm a clinician scientist. So I'm a working physician, a sport medicine physician. I work in Canada, and I work with mostly endurance athletes, triathlon, swimming, and um, running. And I'm a scientist, so I have a PhD in sport medicine, and I do research uh, quite a bit on energy deficiency, but also in other health-related topics for athletes. So let's get into uh, the the main topic then, relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, can you just define what that is for uh, listeners that may not be aware? And and also, how is it connected uh, to the female athlete triad? Sort of what happened to that? Because that's kind of an interesting story, I think. Sure. And maybe I'll actually start with that because that was the precursor to REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport. Uh, Barbara Drinkwater in, in the 1980s defined a, she's a scientist from the United States, defined a syndrome which is known was known as the female athlete triad, where she found athletes who had eating disorders, developed osteoporosis, as well as amenorrhea or lack of menstruation. Over the years, uh, that developed into um, the female athlete triad as we knew it, where um, those three components uh, were further defined that you didn't necessarily have to wait until you had osteoporosis and amenorrhea. We could see that there was a continuum uh, where the low energy availability uh, contributed to the development of the other two problems. What we found in uh, 2014, the International Olympic Committee convened a group of experts to look at the female athlete triad in more detail. And what this group found when they reviewed the scientific literature, we found that the core of the problem is lack of energy availability. So let me define that. Um, That means that there is not enough energy available for uh, exercise after the energy required for daily living, walking, working, and beating our hearts and and, uh, maintaining bodily functions was used. So what we found was that there was more body systems affected than just bone health and menstruation. We found that there were many other body systems affected. And then, in fact, it also occurred in male athletes. Obviously not the menstrual part, but the sexual function was also affected as well as other body parts. So this group decided that really it was not sustainable with the new science available over time, that we 
called it female only. Um, we also thought it was not really a triad because there were many more systems involved other than bone and menstruation. And in fact, the energy availability component wasn't an equal arm, it was the cause. So that is why this group um, coined the new syndrome of relative energy deficiency in sport. So the female athlete triad, um, still, as you can see from our model, uh, you can see that those components are incorporated into relative energy deficiency in sport. But what REDS does is actually expands the knowledge uh, and alerts the clinicians and athletes to be vigilant for other signs and symptoms that could be related to low energy availability. Yeah, that's a perfect overview. And uh, I should mention that uh, the the IOC paper that you that you offered with these other experts it it is open access. So we'll link to it in the in the show notes, and any listener that wants to dig deeper can go and have a look at at that. So since uh, the uh, energy deficiency or low energy availability is the the cause of of this syndrome. Uh, can you uh, go into that a little bit? What what is low energy availability? How is it defined? And and uh, sort of uh, yeah, those those sort of related uh, related topics. Okay, so um, well, I can just define REDS specifically. It's a syndrome of REDS refers to impaired physiological functioning caused by relative energy deficiency includes, but not limited to metabolic rate, menstruation, bone health, immunity protein synthesis, and cardiovascular health. So this can either be caused by over-exercising, so spending a lot of energy, or by under-fueling, either consciously or subconsciously. So when I say consciously or subconsciously, people with disordered eating or eating disorders may under-fuel by consciously restricting their intake. The subconsciously part is if someone just doesn't realize how much food it takes to fuel their energy outputs and exercise. So this is probably more often the clinical scenario that I see, that people with high volume outputs, triathletes, uh, long distance uh, athletes, don't realize that they have to, that their energy intake isn't sufficient to fuel what their energy outputs are. And in fact, people say, well, but I'm not hungry and I'm eating a lot. Um, appetite itself is not a great indicator of energy um, balance at all. So in fact, it's better if you actually match by measurement your energy output and your energy intake. I don't know if anybody was aware or recalls Michael Phelps's the swimmer who, who um, won the eight gold medals in um, Beijing 2008. And there was an article after the Olympic Games that reviewed what he ate in a current day. And the volumes were incredible. And that's because his energy output were, was incredible. And the um, scientists working with him were matching very carefully and closely his energy intakes with his energy outputs. So not related necessarily only to appetite, but in fact, physiologically measuring it. And uh, so, so how do we know how much we need then if uh, we can't just rely on appetite? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And it's one, of course, that scientists can dig down into with an athlete um, quite accurately. But what does that mean for the average triathlete who, who doesn't have a scientist that's beside them watching what they put on their plate? So I think it's really important for, for those of us who don't have that kind of support um, to to 
take very good stock of what they're eating on a daily basis, uh, making sure that what they eat is um, of of energy dense and nutrient rich. So what do I mean by that? So making sure that the food that you have is um, good quality food, uh, that's a good balance of fruits and vegetables and protein, a fat source, carbohydrate source, so that the foods are of good quality. Making sure that the foods you eat are well balanced throughout the day in terms of pre-training, post-training recovery, that there's snacks throughout the day. And when I say a snack, instead of just having perhaps um uh perhaps instead of having just uh, an apple you have some apple with some cheese so that you add add something to that snack that's got some energy density to it so the other way to monitor this is to to follow your weight and see what's happening with your weight if it's staying about the same it should be good now we do know that when you're high training and you're wanting to peak for a, an event you may wish your weight to be leaner and that can be done um, quite carefully over a period of a month or two to bring you into that lean range as long as your general training is not in that lean competition phase and that's something I see athletes run into difficulty with where they see the body composition of someone who has won in a, a large event and think wow I've got to look like that person all the time to be successful when in fact, that person maybe only looks like that throughout that specific competition period. And then the rest of the season, they're a little bit uh, less lean uh, and training at a little bit higher uh, body fat and body weight. And then they bring themselves down, down to that lean competition, body composition at the time of the event. Yeah, that make, that makes sense. And uh, probably now, as we're we're speaking here at the end of March, and uh, the COVID nineteen is uh, is all over us, so no races are happening, obviously. But also, uh, we're trying to to do our best to to stay at a with at a, with a healthy immune function. So probably now is not a good time to try to be at your leanest, but actually rather have a little bit of extra, if if anything, on you to make sure that you're not immunocompromised. Yes, for sure. And and as I said, the athletes that I find run into trouble think they have to be in that low lean space all the time. And, and that just is not sustainable from a health perspective or actually from a performance perspective. You will find, <clears throat> and we do have some evidence that shows that if you are in relative energy deficiency with low energy availability, you will actually not respond the same to the training stimulus. So not only will your health be negatively affected, but your performance will be negatively affected. Oh, that's interesting. Is that uh, published data that, uh, that is available or is it something that, uh, is still, uh, that you're still working on? And no, that's definitely uh, published. And certainly the science related to the health issues is, is more robust than the science related to training adaptation. But there are um, some good studies that, that talk about the effects in training. Um, Van Heest uh, is a study from the U.S. that's uh, from 2014 that took um, swimmers. So it took teenage female swimmers. Uh, they, this cohort of young women uh, did a 400-meter time trial. Then they all did the same three-month training program. And then at the end of the three-month training program, they did the same 400-meter time trial. Now, this group of young women, about half of them were 
energy deficient with suppressed ovarian function. So that's how we defined uh, that group. And the other half had normal ovarian function. So they had enough fuel and energy availability to maintain menstrual function. What we found, what then he's found at the end of the, of the three-month training block, that the athletes that were ovarian suppressed had a slower time than their initial time three months prior, and that the group that had good ovarian function got faster, which is what we hope. You go through a three-month training block, you want to be faster at the end of your training block. The group that had ovarian suppression not only didn't improve, they actually got slower. So that was really a nice little nice study done in, in swimmers. Uh, we do know that that uh, through Ida Haikira's work that there is an increased injury risk in people with uh, REDS. And there are some other studies as well that uh, show that, um, especially in um, endurance rowing, that in the fourth quarter of the race that endurance uh, capacity falls off. Neuromuscular function also is affected. So there's a, a number of um, uh, studies uh, looking at performance. Love to see more, but there's certainly enough that was convincing for our group to include performance consequences as uh, in, in addition to the health consequences of, of low energy availability. Mm. And, and what's the range of magnitudes of performance consequences that we've seen in these studies? Well, so I talk about the training adaptation. Uh, the injury risk is actually a pretty significant one, and one that I'd like to point out in particular, and that is um, bone stress injuries, so stress fractures in bones. These are not uncommon in triathletes, unfortunately, because, as you know, uh, triathletes load with the running component, and stress fractures certainly can occur. And, and that's a significant performance um, issue when you are taking six to 12 weeks off training in the middle of the season for a, um, for a stress fracture. So that's certainly one that I find that I'm working very hard to prevent in my long distance and endurance uh, athletes. Yeah, I, I was, uh, and yeah, that's, I totally agree that that's like the number one thing that you can do if you want to improve as an athlete is to not get injured because that consistency is the most important thing. Um, I, I was uh, just thinking if you have in these uh, different studies that have measured performance consequences, can you sort of point to a percentage difference between the groups that have had uh, uh, adequate energy availability versus those that uh, have not or, uh, or is that difficult because of different time ranges and so on? Yeah, it's not that easy to quantify. I mean, in the Van Hees paper in swimming, there was a statistically significant difference and they could have the seconds in time in the 400 meter. But how how does one extrapolate that to other sports is something that still remains to be done. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, so the other thing that I wanted I, to ask sorry, about... Sorry, I realized you actually asked what... Um, energy availability is and, and definition. Yes. So I, I didn't yeah. quite define that. And I'll come back to that question if you don't mind. Yeah, um, that was what I was going to follow up on. Okay. The, um, so energy deficiency is that relative to the energy intake in comparison with the energy expenditure of homeostasis, so that's regular body function, physical activity of daily living, and sport activity. So low energy um, availability, let me just open my notes here so I get the exact uh, wording here is um, 
energy intake minus the energy cost of exercise in contrast to fat-free mass. So that is, um, is actually a definition that's a, a formula. So energy availability equals the energy intake minus the energy cost of exercise with respect to fat-free mass. So in healthy adults, we can actually calculate that, and it's about 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day, and that person would therefore be have appropriate energy balance or energy availability. So that's a formula that you, know, you asked me to define, um, but then how does that translate into you know, sort of real language for people? And what, that, what I say to my athletes and coaches when I'm working with them that means that you've got enough energy left over after daily living to pay or to support um, your exercise. So uh, if you don't mind, we can use myself as an example here, because actually just before our interview, I, I did this little back of napkin calculations for myself. Uh, my weight is um, about 67 kilos and uh, probably around 10% body fat. So let's just round things nicely and say that my uh, fat-free mass is 60 kilograms and mm -hmm. to then have 45 um, kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day available uh, before taking into or accounting for exercise that means that i need to take 45 times 60 which is 2700 calories is what i need before i've done any exercise and then if i do exercise i need to replace the energy lost is is that how Yes. Uh, how we can think about it in a practical sense. Yes. It's math. Got it. Yes. And and it's actually a kind of kind of a lot considering I'm a fairly light individual at 67 kilos to think that even on a rest day I I need to have 2700. To me it's not surprising. I know this now after years in the sport, but for many it sounds like really a lot and and I know that many people would perhaps assume that they might need almost like a thousand calories less than what they actually that they actually do need yes and often i find athletes underestimate how much calories or, or what their portions actually are as well on the other side of the equation oh you find that that's interesting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. so people when we know when we ask athletes yeah. to do a three-day sort of um, food log of what they they eat they often underestimate uh, or are inaccurate in in measuring quantity or or estimating what each of the different food portions are wait so, so when you say underestimate uh, do you mean that they they say they take uh, you know they they underestimate the amount that they actually put on their plate so the the point is it's inaccurate um difficult yeah. to actually measure it in real life you take someone to a lab you can weigh it yeah. out and measure it and monitor it quite nicely in fact i was just in japan recently in tokyo in preparation for the olympic games and in their athlete cafeteria they had a um sort of like a computerized camera as you walked out of the cafeteria with your full tray and you put the tray underneath the camera and it would actually read what that athlete had on their tray and give them an output of what their calories kilocalories what their nutrients were so that they'd have a good accurate measurement of actually what they were eating which was kind of an interesting uh approach yeah yeah very interesting uh, all right so uh, i mean i know you already mentioned uh, the health list of health consequences but can you just 
run through that list again quickly so so that we get that clear what are the potential consequences of uh, of rebs of rel- relative energy deficiency so we've talked about um so from the health consequences we talked about menstrual function or um in the males sexual function from through the hypogonadal um testicular axis gonadal axis bone health we've talked about there are other endocrine or hormonal systems affected metabolic systems hematological or blood systems growth and development in young athletes who are still at at that stage of life psychological consequences cardiovascular gi or gastrointestinal and immunological so lots of different systems can be affected and let me make this very clear not everyone has all systems affected some may only have one or two some may have three so not everyone gets everything but these are all of the different systems that have been shown in the literature to have a negative consequence to low energy availability. Can you elaborate on cardiovascular? Is that increased risk for cardiovascular disease or is it uh, reduced cardiovascular uh, performance in, in sports or what is that? So the cardiovascular is more related to endothelial function as opposed to developing um, you know, atherosclerotic disease. So it's more related to how the endothelium responds in the lining of the vascular system. And uh, for hormonal, are there any like more common, I guess hormonal can, could be a lot of different things, but what are the most common potential negative hormonal consequences? So the most um, sensitive hormonal consequences are the um, reproductive system. Uh, the, also, there's significant hormonal influences on bone health, on fat metabolism as well. Thyroid function is another one that can be affected as well. So what are, and this will probably vary, but uh, are there any of these symptoms that are typical to be the first ones to show if an athlete is in relative energy deficiency for, for too long? What would be some very typical markers? Usually, especially in women, menstrual function is one of the first um, first uh, hormonal markers to be affected. In comparison, say, with um, growth hormone resistance or slowing of the metabolic rate, um, reduction in glucose utilization, these come a little bit later, mobilization of fat stores. Uh, these are a little bit later. The early one really is the menstrual function. And, and, um, and, and I think if you think logically about how we are adapt. Uh, built as human beings, if we are um, in a state of, you know, famine or where we have a, uh, our food supply has been compromised, the last thing the human body needs is to reproduce and have another mouth to feed, uh, to have a, you know, a pregnancy where that body that has a, you know, compromised food source has to develop another human being. So in fact, it, it actually is protective to say, okay, there's not enough food around. And in males, what would be? Well, in males, what we also see is a decreased testosterone. So in male athletes, it's similar. And I think it's for a similar reason. We don't need to reproduce if we have an, um, a, a food supply or a famine type state. Now, in our current society, in most countries, we don't have food supply issues. 
but the body doesn't really know that whether or not there's a food supply issue it's 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 just recognizing that there's a, a lack of energy availability so it starts to shut down less essential body systems i don't say shut down but compromise less essential body systems and reproduction is one that's not necessary for life so that is in both males and females the first any males what would be a typical first first symptom uh, probably, probably a male would notice fatigue. They may notice decrease in sexual drive. They may notice um, a decrease in uh, sexual function, and they might notice a lack of morning erections. So these are kinds of things that a male would notice. In a woman, it's a little easier that you can say, "Oh, I missed my period this month." It's a very visible, visual marker that most women are trained to monitor. So it is a little different, but certainly when I talk to male athletes, those are the kinds of questions I'm asking. Now, fatigue itself can be caused by many, many things, the most common of which is not sleeping enough, not going to bed. Um, but fatigue is one of the signs, uh, symptoms of um, low testosterone. Yeah. For females, um, irregular menstrual cycles is very prevalent in endurance athletes. So is it it can't really be or can it be that uh, everybody who has an irregular menstrual cycle suffers from relative energy deficiency or what are like how do you know if it is related to energy deficiency or not can you or do you need to see a doctor right so i'm going to unpack your question because there's a few layers in there that we need to discuss you're absolutely correct that that meant that um changes in menstrual function are very common in endurance athletes it's it's extremely common. Um, I'd like to point out to your listeners that it's actually not normal. Let's not normalize this, that this is actually okay in endurance athletes. And I know coaches out there that say, oh, I know how hard to work my women. I work them hard enough. And I can tell by when they lose their periods, then that's where we want them to be. That actually is not healthy and it's not okay. So Women that lose their periods, number one cause in women is pregnancy. So that's the first thing we need to make sure that if an athlete has missed a period, that they could they be pregnant. The second, and probably more common in, in the endurance athletes, is it is from an energy availability issue. Now, that doesn't mean they necessarily have REDS, because in REDS you have to have a number of these to to be an issue and it has to be prolonged enough now one missed period does not equal reds you have to have more than that three three missed periods or not even just missed periods but changes uh, um, we call them oligomenorrhea which is defined as being less frequent uh, or irregular or significantly less flow over a period of three months so those athletes who notice that, it could very well be related to low energy availability. And, and I can, and the body can tolerate, um, you know, two to three months when you're in your lean phase of that and then bring them back up with being fairly normal. But to have that as a regular training, oh, I haven't had a period in two or three months, it's okay, I'm a triathlete, it's not okay. You likely will have some performance and other health consequences that need to be managed. So I would encourage if an athlete to seek medical support if they have had, you know, one or two, um, so let's say two or three missed periods, because there are other causes of amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea in athletes that should be investigated. There's polycystic ovary disease. There's a couple of other things that athletes can get as human beings that are not related to REDS. 
Could another reason be just regular non-functional overreaching or even getting into overtraining? So even regardless of how much energy you take in, if you're working too hard for the body to be able to sustain that homeostasis, that could be another possible reason for a lost cycle. Well, you raise a very good point. Is overtraining and overreaching different from REDS? Excuse me. And <clears throat> I think um, there is certainly a couple of cool schools of thoughts that um, overreaching and overtraining is very hard to define. And I think we'll find over time that there's a crossover with REDS, that overreaching and overtraining is relating related to energy deficiency. So in fact, um, what we might be finding is that those two are actually probably one and the same. All right. Interesting. And how long can an athlete potentially be in a state of low energy availability until they develop the first symptoms? Oh, I wish it was so clearly defined. There are many modifying factors that are very interdependent. So a younger woman earlier a teenage woman is more likely to have menstrual dysfunction and more sensitive than an athlete who's in her 30s uh, and certainly there's other factors involved that are intra and interdependent so it's not so easy to say oh well you're okay if it's only x number of days but in fact it's really dependent on each person and what their current health status is and their age and the prolonged nature of how long they've had the um, uh, how long the energy availability issues been and as well what their current volumes are so i take each case on a case by case basis and look at all of their factors look at all the different health consequences do a full solid um, uh, workup in terms of hematological workup uh, history physical examination, if necessary, looking at bone and other causes to rule out other problems, and then make a decision at that point. So it's not so easily defined for people to diagnose themselves. My encouragement to your listeners are, if you're having some of these symptoms that, that I've discussed and you're not sure, probably best to go in and see a sports physician if you have one in your area. Uh, a family physician should be trained in this, but uh, I find it's in different areas. There's um, different educational systems that maybe not are up to date, uh, but certainly a sports physician or an endocrinologist that's familiar with REDS uh, would be able to help you unpack your symptoms and find out if there's other causes and um, if it's energy deficiency, treat you appropriately. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Then what about weight loss? If uh, we have an athlete that wants to lose weight or even if they, uh, it's just maybe a couple of kilos to get to that final like racing weight, uh, what is sort of the protocol? How can we balance that weight loss with not getting into low energy availability because we need uh, i guess how, how what is the difference between energy availability and a caloric deficit at the end of the day we talked about the formula but how how narrow is the tightrope that we need to balance there to to get it right yeah it's 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 pretty narrow but certainly it's it's doable and I, and i do it i do it with athletes because it's an important thing uh 
in performance in certain sports, a particular body composition um, equals ideal performance. And we know that. That's a reality and that's what we are faced with. There's just what I think I want your listeners to take home is that there's a good way to do it. There's a bad way to do it and there's a terrible way to do it. So I encourage your listeners to be smart about it um, and, and do it the best way with the least health implications. So what do I, what do I mean by that is if you know you have uh, some weight to lose, and when I say it's not so much weight but body composition, so you want a lower fat content uh, uh, and an ideal body composition for performance, don't do it in one to two weeks. Don't do it by severely cutting, you know, quantity and increasing volume. Do it over a period of two to three months. Do it with specific goals in mind. Do it very carefully with the support of a scientist or a physiologist that can work with you to do it carefully. Do it by cutting out the extra little bits in, in your diet as opposed to restricting things like, you know, that are really important for your function like milk, calcium, um, you know, the um, proteins that you need for recovery, the carbohydrate that you need for fuel, but cut out the extra bits of sugars and, and things that, um, you know, just lean it down a little bit. And in fact, it might only be three to five pounds that comes off. But in fact, because your body composition changes, you're in the ideal composition for performance. So doing it thoughtfully, doing it over time, doing it with some scientific support really can be done quite nicely to get you to that ideal spot so that during that high competition or key competition period, you're, you're at your ideal and then come back up fairly quickly afterwards so that you um, aren't in that state for a prolonged period of time. And what if you have more there's, weight? There's to a lose, nice caveat. That... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. If you have more weight to lose, if you are somebody who might have 15 kilos to lose, what is the rate at which you can should at most aim to lose that weight? How many kilos per month would be acceptable? That's a lot of weight to lose. Fifteen kilos. I'm talking about, uh, you know, two to three is really for people. Yeah, if we're, that if we're not good, talking about uh, about elite athletes, yeah. but, but amateur athletes. Right. Yeah. So for am amateur athletes, um, if I think if you are you've got fifteen kilos to lose, you're probably starting starting a program. And if you're starting a program, I encourage you not to really look at the scales, but to be looking at increasing your physical activity and just eating a healthy, balanced diet. And if you increase your activity and start training with a coach that's you know starting you as a developmental athlete and you're just having you know some fun and getting into the training. Don't worry about the scales and the weight and what you're eating. Just eat a healthy diet as best you can and um, increase your activity. And I suspect the weight will look after itself. Uh, part of sport, and I think an important part that we often lose, is the enjoyment of actually what you're doing. And sport has so many positive effects. And one of them is working with other athletes and having fun as a group training together. Another one is the enjoyment of physical accomplishment. And I think what are your goals? If what I'm talking about in terms of, you know, percent body composition and bringing you down, that's for the elite. For most athletes out there that are just enjoying the ability to swim, bike and run, just be sensible about it. Enjoy the training. Eat a healthy, balanced diet. Don't worry so much about stepping on the scales and whether or not your energy is balanced today versus yesterday. Just be sensible and uh, enjoy yourselves. Mm, okay, perfect. 
So the, the weight loss, if, if, it, if you follow that, you probably will lose about one pound per week. And that's a very healthy um, weight. So let's say a kilo would take you two weeks to lose. Yeah. That's a very healthy weight loss pattern. If it's faster than that, it's probably not sustainable and not healthy. All right. Yeah, perfect. And uh, one thing that I wanted to ask as well is uh, how prevalent is REDS? And uh, I guess, uh, uh, I don't know, the research might be done mostly in elites, but uh, if you from your practice have any idea of how prevalent it is in amateurs, then uh, just uh, some uh, non-quantitative answers, but uh, but just some anecdotal evidence, then that would be interesting to hear as well. Right. Well, we do know that there is um, prevalence data of the different uh, of the different components of REDS, and we have that data. We know that it's fairly common in endurance um, and aesthetic athletes, and in particular, there's the different components. And in eating disorders, is a bit higher in certain sports where the weight is a concern. Um, for example, judge sports, um, weight category sports, such as, um, you know, we're trying to cut weight uh, to make a lower category in sort of judo or wrestling. Also in weight dependent sports like rowing, where the lighter you are in your boat, the faster you will go. Uh, and, and I mentioned already the judge sports where how you look isn't supposed to be part of the marks, but it is. <laughs> so artistic or synchronized swimming, um, figure skating, something like that. Uh, we do know, however, that it also occurs in elite football players, in um, in para athletes, cyclists. I guess that's that it's an endurance sport, but also a weight dependent sport. So, and it's different depending on each one. The ones that we see it less in are, are precision sports, so like archery, shooting, where where the body composition is less and less important in terms of sport performance. In the general population, I probably my practice is not representative of most general populations because I see a fair bit of reds, but I do see this um, occurring in um, what people would call recreational athletes, but ones that have been very avid uh, in their sport and certainly ones that have um, don't have the science support behind, beside them. So when I'm saying by science support, people in um, Olympic stream athletes have science teams around them. They have physicians, they have dietitians, they have sports scientists that work with the teams to monitor them quite closely. I often see in, say, a 30- or 40-year-old ultra-distance runner who's, who doesn't have any scientific support, they just are out there doing their own thing, they're more likely to run into trouble because they have the lack of supervision and, and uh, perhaps lack of education um, from, from their support team. Yeah. And uh, are there some other risk groups other than uh, the sport that you're actually in? And uh, like, for example, having a back background of disorder eating uh, or even a background of dieting, being on any sort of name diet and uh, other just other risk factors in general that you see or know of from research? Oh, absolutely. So we do know that athletes that restrict food um, uh, will are at higher risk for developing red. So that's the energy deficiency, sorry, the um, eating disorder group or disordered eating. But even a red flag to me is when I'm screening athletes, if they have restrictive eating habits, but not a diagnosed eating disorder, those are quite concerning to me. So athletes that say, well, I, I restrict milk, I restrict 
um, uh, carbohydrates. I restrict meat. Those people that are restricting foods are probably, um, you know, on the spectrum of disordered eating, perhaps, or at least uh, compromising their energy intake through restricting certain food groups. Uh, those those are certainly concerning and, and are red flags to me, not necessarily, you know, diagnostic, but certainly someone I'm going to look a little bit more closely into. The other, the other athlete group that are at risk are those that actually have underlying health problems. So say someone has Crohn's disease or an inflammatory bowel disease or an inflammatory arthritic disease, they're a little bit higher risk um, because there's other health problems going on that requires, you know, the body's energy to help repair. Um, and they may be just compromised as well. So if there's someone with other unrelated um, health issues, uh, it, they does, it does put them at a little bit higher risk. All right. And uh, what about treatment? If you have gone to see your physician, uh, your sports physician, and, uh, and you have been diagnosed with REBS, what is the protocol for getting out of it and uh, sort of the time course as well? Well, that's a that's a great question, and it, it can each athlete, depending on what their presentation is, will be a little bit different. However, the really main main um, treatment for this is reversing the energy deficiency, and that's the most logical. So, how can we improve the energy availability to then starting to um, allow those body systems to start functioning again? So this would be working quite closely, first of all, to rule out any eating disorder or disordered eating, because that's treated very differently than someone who's inadvertently just over-exercised or just under-fueled inadvertently. So for the non-eating disorder, disordered eating athlete, it's working specifically to educate around um, where they're, where they're um, falling short in terms of energy balance what kinds of foods to increase their energy and take on a gradual basis because it is hard for people to change their eating habits. So how can we tweak what they're doing and, and bring them up um, slowly so it's sustainable over time? And by reversing the energy availability, that is the most effective method for returning menstrual function and proven the most effective method for increasing bone density. So that's something that's really interesting because in the past we used to think, well, what they're missing is hormones, so let's just give them the birth control pill. If it's a woman, we're giving them hormone, their bones will be protected. And in fact, that's actually not true. Uh, the birth control pill can actually impede bone density, so have a negative effect on bone. Uh, and, and doesn't actually deal with the core problem, which is the energy availability. It just gives women a false sense of having a regular menstrual period and my bones are protected, I'm on the birth control pill, so life is good. Actually not true, uh, and in fact wrong. So um, having the reversal of the energy availability provides the bone with um, actually the substrates with which to build better bone and healthier bone. And it does take time, but it is proven to be the most effective. Mm, yeah, that is, that is very interesting. Um, and uh, what about the time course? How long, and I guess this will depend probably on how long you've been in, in low energy availability, but what sort of ranges are we talking about here to, for example, Uh, get your menstrual cycle to return if you're a female athlete from when you start working with with your physician and you reverse the or you start the reversal period by by getting your uh, your energy intake to match up with your expenditure and so on 
You're absolutely right that the caveat is the longer you've had it, the longer it will take to come back. And also, if you are a younger athlete, the more difficult it is than if you're an older athlete as well. Uh, so the usual time frame that I see when someone is treated and adheres to the program properly is for the menstrual function will come back in about three to six months. And, and I often see athletes take up to a year or two. Um, for bone uh, to improve, it takes about a year. So this is really difficult for people who want a quick fix. They say, oh, I realize I have reds. I have been amenorrheic for two years and I want to fix it. And I've been working really hard for three months and I still don't have my period yet. Um, it takes time and it takes patience. And I encourage these athletes to just, you're doing the right thing. We just need to be patient and we monitor a number of different parameters to show over time. Of which, you know, one of them is how are you feeling? How are you, you know, how's your training going? How are some of your other biochemical uh, markers going? And, and menstrual function will come back, but you know, the, it does take it does take some time and and patience. Bone takes, as I say, a little bit longer to respond. And so those are two very distinct markers that we use to assess. Uh, I don't measure bone density uh, regularly. Um, uh, when I say regularly, probably every six months and those I'm really concerned about and yearly and those that are less less concerning. Um, but certainly it's slower than the menstrual and the menstrual takes three to six months minimum to respond. Yeah, okay. And uh, probably we're talking about even though it's more difficult to measure, but uh, with males, a similar time course of just general reversal of the syndrome. Yes, in males, it may be a little bit faster. Uh, that's our understanding that it, it's probably a bit faster to reverse. Um, we know less in males than we know in females, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just leave it with that caveat that I'm encouraged by some initial research that it looks like it will be faster to respond. But um, uh, stay tuned; more science is happening in men than ever before, so I'm very excited about this. Mm. And by the way, this is something that I didn't ask about, but. Uh, how common is it in males compared to females, uh, if we have any numbers on uh, percentage prevalence or anything, or just, again, perhaps anecdotal evidence from your practice? Yeah, we don't have solid numbers comparing male to females. We certainly know in jockeys and in cyclists and in ultra marathoners and triathletes, it's, it's uh, common in males, a little less easy to um, measure and monitor. And, and the uh, females have had 20 to 30 more years of research in the area. So there's a lot more data on women than men. But we know that it's it's certainly, I'm as concerned about my male athletes as I am about my female athletes, even though the science isn't quite as strong. Mm, okay. Is there anything else that we should discuss on the topic of reds that we have missed, that we haven't gotten to yet, that you can think of? Uh, I think one thing we haven't talked about is prevention. And I think um, that's partly what this uh, this uh, podcast will do today is is talk about prevention um, and, and people by like you and, and your work getting the information out is is really an important part of prevention. We can prevent this by having um, you know sensible diets. We can we can also prevent this by having appropriate training loads uh, by periodization. Uh, and by um, spreading the word um, for athletes uh, with respect to the early support for eating disorders and disordered eating.
So prevention is really important. Make sure that the youth and developing athletes um, don't just look at the elites and say, oh, I've got to do that training load, uh, that, that developmental coaches um, actually have a very sensible approach to both the stage of, of development of the athlete as well as that athlete's age. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good, really good point to bring up. And and on that note, what's your take on uh, on using the scale regularly to just to check that you're not losing weight? Because I know that we get a lot of advice these days to actually not use the scale because I think that. And that advice obviously comes from a good place and it is because some people get sort of addicted to seeing the number go down. But equally, a preventative measure would be to actually make sure that you can see it remain sort of stable. So what's your take on on actually regularly weighing yourself? Well, that's a very loaded question about regular weighing. Um, I worked with uh, synchronized swimmers for many years, and, and um, you know, these athletes were often subjected to daily weights in public by their coaches on the pool deck. And that's very unhealthy for, for young women to be under this kind of weight scrutiny and can lead to, uh, in predisposed athletes, to eating disorders. So I think we need to be very careful of scales and what it means to different people. Uh, and um, and I, I give, obviously, a very um, – I painted a very difficult situation with these young athletes. Um, I encourage athletes to use the scales very sparingly because weight is only one parameter that we're looking at. In fact, nobody ever won a gold medal for having a low weight. They, they have performance Thankfully, it's performance that's actually what's measured, not somebody's weight. So we do know that um, some athletes require to have a higher weight than others to have certain performance outcomes. So the weight itself is something that I think we need to monitor. But um, if you're a recreational athlete, probably weighing yourself once a week just to keep, you know, keep tabs is sufficient. For athletes who are in the higher elite stream, we may um, have a little bit a closer uh, eye on these athletes. But in fact, the athlete doesn't always need to know what their weight is. The scientists can take that information. I encourage coaches not to follow weights, uh, but rather to follow performance and uh, change their um, training program according to what performance outputs you're looking looking at. Certainly, if anyone notices another athlete losing significant amount of weights or their performance falling off, that's one of the things we should monitor. But Really, it's going to be dependent specifically upon the sport type and the specific athlete um, and what their risks are. If there's a family history of eating disorders or disordered eating, that's a particularly high, higher concern for that athlete than if there isn't that. Younger females uh, tend to have more difficulties with eating disorders. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, we can't forget that eating disorders also occur in males. Um but much less so than in females. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, it, I guess uh, partially this uh, question comes from uh, like personal experience. But And for me, certainly, I've found that uh, I, I do need to weigh myself regularly, but it's definitely more so to make sure that I maintain weight. I'm not chasing any number or anything. But, but actually, I find that if I just eat to appetite and not check in, then... I might tend to lose weight when I don't want to do it. So, so from that perspective, I I do find it important. But but also, as you say, there are a lot of caveats to to that and how often you should use it and so on. 
Yes, absolutely. Sure. Uh, you're absolutely right. You're at low risk um, because you're not worried about losing more weight. Um, you're thinking of losing it from an inadvertently over-exercising. And so in that case, keeping track so that you make sure you don't lose weight is an important thing to do. Yeah. Um, anything else other than prevention that you wanted to add uh, that we uh, still haven't discussed? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you've covered we've covered most of it. It's just making sure that people understand you don't have to wait for it to happen. And uh, I think coach education is really important in this as well as parents. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully this uh, so don't, this gets out to to a lot of both of those groups. So so that will be really important. Excellent. So let's move. Let's move on to the rapid fire questions. And uh, these ones are okay. very short and sweet, one sentence answers. And the first one is What's your favorite okay. book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports or your field of expertise in general? Ah, book, blog, or resource. I actually don't use books, I use more science. So for me, I'm the one perusing these scientific publications as they come out. So I don't know that that's very helpful for you. That's what I like to use. But for um, athletes, I think if you can follow, um, say, someone like Trent Stallenworth or Louise Burke or Ida Hakura on social media, um, they will be um, translating the science into um, into knowledge that's uh, consumable and in, in through social media. That would be very helpful. Yep, follow them on Twitter, and Louise Burke will be a guest on the podcast soon. We have scheduled a time to talk in the next couple of weeks Excellent. so so that will be a, a good one uh what's a personal habit her. that's helped you achieve success ah that's a very good question probably um persistence uh, never giving up um, keeping my eye on the goal and hard work that's maybe more than one personal habit but that's just uh... <laughs> no that's good that's great uh, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Yes, I saw that question that you sent to me. I actually don't have any regrets. I wouldn't do anything differently in my career. I enjoyed a, an elite athlete career. And then I moved into medicine um, and I've enjoyed my career in sport medicine. It's taken me to great places in the world and worked with great people and have been able to discover um, and work in science. And that's been very exciting for me. So I don't think I'd have done anything differently at any point in my career. Excellent. And uh, finally, are you on social media or do you have your, your practice that you want to, uh, to tell the listeners about where they can find you and, and so on? Any po points of contact that you have and you want to mention, feel free to do so sure. now. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm on social media. I'm at, at Twitter at margo.mountjoy. Um, I am on, on um, Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, I am in private practice uh, through the University of Guelph Health and Performance Center in Canada. If you live in that region, I'd be very happy to see you. I do see a lot of triathletes in the region and uh, look after several of Olympian triathletes uh, that have come through our training centers. So uh, if you're in that region, I'd be very happy to see you. So thank you. Yeah, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much, Margaret, for taking the time today to come and talk uh, with us about uh, Reds. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Mountjoy. 
You can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com. And in the show notes, I will link to the paper we discussed, the IOC consensus statement, and also to uh, Dr. Mountjoy's profiles on the McMaster University website and on ResearchGate. Tune in again on Thursday. That's when we have another Q&A coming your way. And then next Monday, I have another interview. And this one is with another professor, Professor Hajmol Ali, down in New Zealand, on the topic of using caffeine as an ergogenic aid in endurance sports. And he is the one of the authors of the most recent, most up-to-date meta-analysis on that specific topic. So a true expert on that one. Definitely an interesting one. I enjoyed uh, doing that interview and uh, got some really great insights from Professor Ali. On a different note, I want to draw your attention to two training plans that I've released in uh, recent weeks and months. The first one is the COVID-19 free training plan uh, that exists in three different versions, a low volume, mid volume and high volume version. And that will help you train through these times with uh, no swimming so it's focused on uh, running cycling and strength and conditioning so actually some of you may be swimming already but for those of you that are not then this would be a great plan to use for now uh, while we're waiting for news around when the races might resume or might not resume who knows and i'm also recording this a bit ahead of time so things might have changed by the time you listen to this either way even if uh, you can start to train for your next race that might might just serve as a bit of inspiration and give you some interesting workouts and give you some idea on training plan structure that you can use in your own training if you are a self-coach athlete it is free so you have nothing to uh, lose by downloading it to go and have a look i want, want wanted to reach and impact as many athletes as possible to to help out in any way that i can and then the other one is uh, a not a free plan, but it is heavily discounted because it's in the launch period. That's the beginner Ironman training plan, which uh, until the end of May is still available for 60% off its normal price. So a few weeks, a couple of weeks still to make use of that promo period. And you can find more information on scientifictraflon.com on the training plans page about that. And also coaching, of course, if you are looking for individual coaching, we have some slots available. So check out more information on the website and contact us if you are interested and want to learn more and discuss. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roca.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>